This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it is only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today, we're going behind the scenes of the top public affairs show ever, Meet the Press. Executive producer and 20-year veteran of the broadcast, Betsy Fisher is here to share war stories and insights into how Meet gets on the air and stays number one. Then we'll talk presidential debates with Professor Alan Schroeder from Northeastern University in Boston. His book, 50 Years of High-Risk TV, is as good as it gets when it comes to understanding the nuances and stakes in televised political debates. But first, I am joined, as always, by Joshua King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, as I was in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, as always, it is great to have you here. It's great to be with you, Adam. I'm here in New York, as usual. I'm here only miles away from Liberty State Park, Jersey City, New Jersey. The site this week of the presidential announcement of former governor, former ambassador to China, John Huntsman, played very Reagan-esque with the backdrop of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Some snafus, which I thought, Adam, were kind of over-reported by the press, didn't you? Yeah, you know, it it was very interesting to me that uh, people were just a little bit cranky and they wanted to to be a little tough on Huntsman. Uh, Having said that, I really did go back and YouTubed uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, announcement at the very same place uh, from 1980, and uh, I honestly thought that it, it just paled in comparison to the to the real and authentic, uh, powerful announcement speech that we saw from Reagan. Uh, some people said, Josh, that there were as many uh, supporters as there were journalists. I just felt it was short on energy. Well, I think there were probably more journalists than there were supporters. Uh, People who were there tell me that. Um, I think anything will pale against uh, the Gipper and the legacy that he leaves. But look, I think that it looked very good. I think in terms of a guy who had absolutely almost zero name recognition going in, he buys the front page cover of the Financial Times and many other newspapers. That soundbite in front of the Statue of Liberty gets played many times over. It works in middle America, and importantly for Huntsman, I think, who might just visually come off as, oh, another Mitt Romney, the next morning he does all three morning shows in Morning Joe, and I think he comes across as quite genuine. I think he is uh, authentic, Josh. I agree with you, and, and I think his decision to sort of run a high road campaign will serve him well, but this is not a race for uh, church aldermen. You've got to get people excited. You've got to build support, and Lord knows this man needs to increase his name recognition. There may be a time and a place for for all this, but for now, I think excitement, energy, and passion should be uh, A number one, and I think they're they're kind of short on that. Well, he's got to show that, uh, but he has a very compelling story, a very attractive family, uh, uh, in addition to his own kids, adopted kids, which are now his own. Uh, I think he's playing a very strategic race, and it'll be interesting to see how it works, basing his campaign with the headquarters in Florida, where his wife is from, and also bypassing Iowa and the complexities of running in the caucus there, 
focusing on New Hampshire and South Carolina, both with open primaries. And if Barack Obama is running unopposed on the Democratic side, there'll be a lot of moderate to conservative Dems who will say, I want to put my vote for Huntsman. I want New Hampshire and South Carolina to really matter. You know, we've got a great show today. Uh, Some really wonderful guests to talk about, among other things, what it's like to produce Sunday morning television. The executive producer of Meet the Press is with us. Uh, But there was one other big thing this week, Josh, an address to the nation by President Barack Obama. Yeah, you know, the communications folks at the White House are just in love with having the president give speeches to the empty East Room. And they did it again uh, with the speech this week about Afghanistan, the long walk down the the cross hall over the red car- over the red carpet up to the blue goose in the empty East Room. And I say again, wither the poor Oval Office where these decisions are made and where so many presidents for so many decades have spoken directly to the nation with a message that I thought was quite similar to what he talked about Afghanistan this week. Yeah, this is a tough needle to thread, uh, but the person we're going to start with today is a woman who knows a great deal about what it is to cover presidents, and we're very lucky to have Betsy Fisher with us today. She is the executive producer of NBC's number one rated Sunday morning talk show, Meet the Press. Uh, Betsy Fisher has been in that position since July of 2002, and she has produced interviews with everyone from presidents to cabinet officials to heads of state. Uh, I'm lucky enough to call her a friend. Uh, I've learned from her over the years and been a competitor, and I want to thank you for joining us on Polyoptics, Betsy. It is my pleasure. Uh, Josh King was the uh, production chief in the Clinton White House, and I left Sunday morning television to take an appointment in the Bush administration to do the same. But if you are wondering where the news will come from and what the headlines will be on Monday, you're turning in to meet the press. What has it been like for you to be at the leading edge of network news and news making for so long now? Well, it's just, it's great because I kind of have a front row to history every week, um, thinking back on all the shows that that we've done in terms of the debates and the presidential race and covering world events and conventions. So it's just been a a real real treat and up close view of of everything over the past years. Betsy, can you take us through your week? I mean, you wrap a show on a Sunday morning and we're going to talk a little bit more later about how digital elements and the the added features that you can find online have sort of extended your producing day on a Sunday. But I'm curious about what happens on Monday morning through Saturday and, and the Meet the Press process, how the show's put together. Yeah, we actually, you know, on Sunday, as, as, as unfortunate it may be, as soon as we finish the show, usually David and I are huddling up talking about the show that just happened and thinking, okay, well, what do we have on tap for next week? <laughs> so it sort of never ends. Uh, we try to um, go week to week when we're booking the show. Usually we don't have it set till about Wednesday or Thursday, sometimes into Friday if we're waiting on, you know, news developments. But in a, in a perfect world, it'd be great, and sometimes we're able to do it, is to book the show in advance so we know and we can promote the show that previous Sunday. But we always ha- want to be on top of the news. So if there's a sure thing, like, for example, we had an interview with Newt Gingrich a few weeks ago, and that was one that we had booked you know, a good week or two in advance. So we had a lot of prep time to get ready for that interview and be able to announce it. 
same thing with we had two party chair the new chair of the uh, DNC and RNC debating and that was they had both agreed to come on meet the press first for their first debate so we worked on dates and we were able to look ahead of the calendar a couple weeks and put them down because those sort of things you know are going to be newsy and relevant no matter what else is going on in the week so we were able to book ahead when we can from a competitive position it makes sense if you're in the control room uh, speaking about that Newt Gingrich appearance and you hear through your headphone right-wing social engineering can you anticipate the kind of news that that's going to create later on in the news cycle no sometimes you can that one in particular I I you know we we thought it was interesting but we had no idea it was going to take off the way it did Um, I think in this world, especially recently, you know, with Twitter and Facebook, little things, you know, 140 characters or less statements that people make really do tend to take off and kind of take on a life of their own. More so, I find, you know, in this new digital age than in previous years. I loved being a part of that world on Sunday morning, Betsy. uh, I spent two years doing it with George Stephanopoulos, and there was no greater goal than uh, trying to, you know, aspire to be uh, or to beat, uh, meet the press. It was an insurmountable obstacle. Yeah, thanks for that goal. (laughs) (laughs) But it was an insurmountable obstacle. It kept us on our toes. But one of the things that that I always found, even before I got to that world of Sunday morning television, is that a broadcast like Meet the Press is not the 800-pound gorilla in the space by accident. There is inertia there. It is a very serious um, and, and very very uh, committed place to understanding politics and then also drawing out some of the personalities. You have come to know so many people uh, and you brought them forward to the American public. Uh, What has it been like to sort of introduce new politicians to the stage? I remember a debate that uh, you had in one of the cycles for the Senate where it was the first time I had ever seen John Thune on television Mm -hmm. and Meet the Press was where I did that. That's kind of what appointment viewing on Sunday is about and Meet the Press typifies that. Exactly and it's been very rewarding. You know, those Senate debates um, we created in 2002, and they've really been a lot of fun to do over the years because a lot of times, in terms of national media, some of those senators, the candidates for Senate, don't always get the national exposure. You see their ads, you see things like that floating around news channels, but you don't actually see a substantial interview with those candidates. And even though they don't rep- necessarily represent your state, they're still going to have an impact on legislation. So we thought it was important to you know to do those kind of things and, and we've had a lot of fun over the years as well and I remember back when we now Lindsey Graham is on a Sunday show probably almost every week but I think we were the first uh, Sunday show to put him on way back when he was a member of Congress and he was involved in speaking out in the Kelly Flynn case um, years and years ago and so uh, I think he did his first Sunday interview with Meet the Press way back when when you're, uh, Betsy, looking at your, your annual budget, and I don't know what NBC gives you to, to produce your show either uh, in Washington or on the road, what are the criteria that you use to decide, hey, we're going to take the show on the road th- this week, either it's a primary or a caucus, or in the case of Afghanistan, I think, when David went to, uh, to meet with General Petraeus? Yeah, it is, it's a high bar for us to travel the show. Uh, it is expensive, but also it kind of takes us out of our element, and it takes a lot of planning. So we don't want to be in a situation where we are in a different location, and there's developing news that happens, and we have to pull plugs. So, um, you know, we we will do the conventions. We'll do the major primaries. Um, we did the Afghanistan. We knew that that was an important thing, and we had this exclusive interview with Petraeus during it, so that was definitely worth it. But the bar is high. Um, I feel like people... 
They like to see the show in the studio, actually. They, they like their Washington politics fixed, and that's what we are known for. So it's a, it's a high bar to travel, um, not just because of the expense, but just sort of takes us out of our element, doesn't give us the flexibility that we have week to week. There's a lot of times, you know, if we have a show set and there's breaking news on a Friday or Saturday or even a Sunday morning, the morning Saddam Hussein was captured was a Sunday morning uh, at 6 a.m. Never will forget mm-hmm. that one. But we all scrub the show and start over. So we, we always want to be on top of the news week to week and be able to cover it from the best position that we can. One of the things that was uh, a point of great pride uh, for me in my life, Betsy, uh, my father knew uh, Tim Russert just a little bit, and uh, I, I had the opportunity to sit down and have supper with him at a at a charity event mm. once, and, and uh, it wasn't long after that I found myself as a producer of the McLaughlin Group, and the McLaughlin Group used to tape over there at NBC, and we would be in that big studio right. that's your studio, that's Tim's studio, that's Meet the Press, is home, and uh, I found my way on a Sunday morning to a taping of your broadcast as a young journalist and I I sat there do you all still have a live audience that'll sit in studio a and watch that broadcast happen live we don't have a live audience per se but we do have what I call have friends and family and you must have been part of that um, so we don't, it's not open to the public but occasionally if we have um, you know friends or family in town with one of the crew or one of the staff members you know we you have a little bit of an audience space that we let people right. watch. It, it's really quite something because the music um, and the way that the open happens on Meet the Press creates an energy uh, for viewers, I think, that is just infectious. And it starts and you realize, wow, I'm going to see something special. I'm going to hear something here that uh, is going to be newsworthy. But from a polyoptics perspective, uh, you know, and this is sort of what we do here uh, at Polyoptics here on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, is think about uh, the imagery and the theater of politics. And really, you've been doing this for over 20 years, scrutinizing the tape that, that, that is rolled every day, watching the press conferences, looking for the most compelling elements. How do you all sift through the, the visual elements of your show every week and bring out those most amazing things that a lot of people have just missed, but somehow it, it all pops up within Meet the Press? Well, we spend a lot of time, you know, going through a couple of visual aspects of the show. First of all, we have the, the what we call the taped open of the show, where we say, good morning, our issues this Sunday, and we kind of go through a one-through of what we have coming up on the show. That's about a minute 30 piece of tape, essentially, and that takes a good day and a half. So that is something we spend a lot of time thinking about because, you know, from an audience perspective, I mean, that is what is going to, that right after that open is when people decide whether they're going to stay for the hour or not. So we want to make that as powerful as possible and give our viewers a good indication on what's coming up. So a lot of time and thought goes into that script. That's something that we um, script out on Friday or Saturday. We have editors and graphics and producers working on it all day on Saturday, and then we pre-produce it early on Sunday morning. So we spend a lot of time with that. The elements in the show, you know, we try to use to enhance what we're talking about, and even the graphics in the show. Um, When I first started, I was the researcher for Meet the Press um, when I first started 20 years ago. Actually, I started as an intern and then was the researcher. And that's something that Tim and I worked together a lot on, was creating these graphics, these elements that would go into the show, because we found... A lot of times we'd be talking to a senator and Tim would say, Senator, 
10 years ago, you said, and and the senator's first reaction would be, I never said that, Tim. I didn't Tim. say that. <laughs> and it would be, yes, you did. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. So to get rid of that, we sort of came up with this concept that is repeated a lot now, but back then was relatively new, of actually putting the quote on the screen so that the viewers can see when they said it, how they said it, the context they said it in, uh, and whatnot. So, uh, you know, we we utilize that to um, do a lot of interviews that we can hold people accountable. Sometimes we use them as talking points, a jumping off point for a certain topic. So we spend a lot of time through the week thinking of that. And also you mentioned our set. When you were here, it must have been the old Meet the Press set. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was the Tim Russert set, and you know it's what so many people had just known forever. And now you've really created this amazingly dynamic and very large and enriched set environment for David. Yeah, and it's huge. And the good thing about the set too is that it actually stays up in our studio. We don't right, have you to used to knock it, it down during right, the week. We used and- to strike it every week, and now it's very the great. It's versatile, and we spend a lot of time, you know thinking about the kind of set that we wanted and we were I was very particular about you know we wanted to kind of keep the tradition of meet the press the seriousness of it we wanted that still have that Washington landscape but we wanted to make it new and you know be able to graphically have a lot of videos and things going on but we didn't want it over the top so we really sort of I think we're able to strike that balance you know you see a lot of the bookshelves but you can also see you know the Washington scenes and then we have a lot of video enhancements that we can do on the set and it's very versatile David can move from place to place we have different interview areas and he's he has that great presence that he can carry off you know moving from one place to another on the set Sunday morning so we've really tried to utilize as much of that as we can you know uh it's 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 a funny thing in, in television news, especially in local news. You know, they'll change the set about as often as they'll change the executive producer of the show or the news director in the newsroom, and yet Meet the Press has been a constant, and you've been a constant for so long now. Now at the at the helm of this show, um, and obviously seen not only trying times in the news, uh, but the tragic loss of of a great leader in Tim Russert, who I think everybody in Washington uh, really cared for and and saw. Mm-hmm. As, as somebody who was, uh, you know, very caring for everybody in that entire NBC Washington bureau. Sure. But when, when, you, when you think about the challenges that you face in bringing political news coverage um, to the American people on Sunday morning, do you factor into that the need to constantly introduce new names and faces? Are you worried about uh, gender equity on, on the round table? Sometimes there's criticism that Sunday morning is a place where we don't see a lot of African-American presence. It, it's got to be a difficult calculus for finding ratings, keeping people compelled, making news, and then also paying attention to some of those other things. Sure. And when we put together the roundtable each week, and I mean, you've seen this evolve over the last few years, I mean, we're really thinking of a lot of different components. Um, it's it's worse than creating the ideal dinner party because you just <laughs> you you want to have all you know, want to have different views represented. You want to have young, old, black, white, uh, Republican, conservative. So it's it's we try to figure all of that. And we've also started to mix in over, over the last year or two, you know, some actual members of Congress into the mix. Or we do more strategists and we mix them with other journalists. So it's there's a, a, a big thought process that goes into 
um, who we're going to have. Um, usually we start with one or two key people and then sort of build around that, depending on the news. Um, and it's um, there's a lot of, of thinking and, and figuring out. But we, we, like, we like our core group of people that we have, but we also feel like it's important to bring new people on as well. So obviously you wouldn't want to do a roundtable with four new people because your viewers are kind of used to some analysis that they see from week to week on the show. So we kind of mix that in together in what I hope is a smart way, but um, that's our goal. There ought to be a polyoptics element on the roundtable, don't you think, Adam? I think so, Josh. New segment. The uh, But, you know, Josh, you said this, uh, that the digital components of, of, of these shows really extend the brand. And, uh, you know, Meet the Press does this, and they have uh, the Meet, Meet the Press, uh, what is it, the extra? Well, we have two things. We have what's called a Take Two that we take started two. many years ago that sometimes we will have a newsmaker guest on the show, and we'll stick around, they'll stick around after, and we'll do a more casual conversation. For example, if we have an author on, we don't have time during the show to get too much into the book, we'll do an extended conversation afterwards. And then we also just started, um, probably about two months ago, what we call Press Pass. We had a big debate over the name of this, but we came, we settled on Press Pass to play off Meet the Press. And uh, we do that as sort of a midweek web show that we do on thir- Wednesdays or Thursdays that gives David a chance to speak with a newsmaker interview that not necessarily that person would be on Meet the Press, but somebody of that caliber that's just interesting midweek that would not be a topic or a person that we would necessarily have that next Sunday just because of the news cycle. So it gives us an opportunity to present um, a midweek place online for you know people that are viewers that enjoy the show and enjoy David's interviewing to see online. Uh, and then we started a blog that goes around that called PressPass.com, where David can share his thoughts throughout the week as well. I also note that you have uh, 15,195 followers on Twitter, and that must be another burden of your your 140-character writing throughout the week. Yes, that's that's the MTP, and I'm not even going to try to compete with David Gregory, who I think has about 1.5 million, so <laughs> I'm very small potatoes. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I had a chance to work with David when I was in the White House. Uh, he was interviewing... President Bush uh, in in Jerusalem, and you know one thing I realized about David is that uh, you know besides just sort of being fearless and, and and being full of energy, is that he he's a very charismatic fellow, and uh, you wouldn't necessarily think this, but but President Bush really liked David Gregory. He just you know enjoyed his presence and 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 really enjoyed uh, talking to him off camera. Does does David do a lot of sort of booking of the show himself with his own personal relationships, or is there still a sort of crack staff of people uh, who work with you in this hyper-competitive environment to get those gets? Well, David is certainly, you know, during the week reporting and talking to lots of newsmakers um, just in this course of tr- learning and reporting during the week on what's going on. You know, there are times where, sure, he will pick up the phone on the big the big type of guest and try to close the deal. It's a little hard, and Adam, I'm sure you know this from you know, being in the show, it's you don't also always want the moderator in the position of making deals or not deals for the show like trying to get a person on the, the program right. because you don't ever want to put them in any sort of uncomfortable position um, a lot of times you know guests will say oh well, I will only come on if I'm the lead guest of the show or um, sure I'll come on and then you you call them back later and you realize that they're doing four other shows that <laughs> Sunday and then you're in the position to have to say David why didn't you nail down that exclusive <laughs> so um, you know of course he's working on relationships and reporting and you know helping people get on the show but we sort of try 
try to leave the nitty gritty to um, to you know the staff to kind of well, work out the arrangement. So take, take us in there for a second because you know I, I do know from firsthand experience how competitive these things can be, and I think it's wrong for people to assume that just because Meet the Press has been number one for a decade, it's the longest running show uh, in television history. That that just picking up the phone is enough to get this done. You I all wish, have to make I this wish. right. I'm sure <laughs> this is, is a tough, easy. tough business, right? It is, and and the problem is, of course, when you really want a particular guest, is usually the chances when they're most unlikely to try to want to come on. You know, if they're in some sort of hot water or there's some big debate going on. Um, and sure, you know, a lot of it's it's a fine art of trying to figure out, you know, who's available. You don't want to book too early in the week because you never want to. I hate more than anything is to cancel a guest. Um, and I will only do it if there's major breaking news. So once you give someone a commitment that you're going to have them on the show, you don't want to dump Senator X for Senator Y, um, you know, at the end of the week. That always comes back to bite you. So it's sort of a fine art of trying to align your line up things early in the week, give yourself a little bit of room to deal with breaking news. The good thing, we are very flexible in our format, so we're not locked into having to even do a roundtable per se. So we could do two newsmaker guests if we have to. So if there's some, you know, a major newsmaker that we have lined up, we can put a topper on that um, with some kind of breaking news or we could do a roundtable afterwards. So it just sort of, we have a little bit of flexibility in that sense, which makes booking a little bit easier. But it is a kind of a fine art of trying to um, negotiate. We want to have people in the studio, whether senators are very busy. A lot of them are home on the weekend, not in D.C., trying to work ahead of time with their offices to see, well, we'd really like to have Senator X on the program soon. You know, when will he be in Washington? You know, we'll try to pencil in that date. Um, some people are just – and some people were, we try to get on the program just have no interest in doing a Sunday show interview. Betsy, for the benefit of our listeners, can you can you tell them what is meant in Washington by a full Ginsburg, <laughs> yes. and uh, and and if there's anyone beside the President of the United States who could ever again merit a full Ginsburg? Yes, and I lived through the full Ginsburg, named after William Ginsburg, attorney to Monica Lewinsky, who did all, was the first person to do all five Sunday morning news shows on one Sunday morning. Now we sort of take it for granted because that happens more frequently, especially with administration guests. But for when Bill Ginsburg did it, it was never to be done. You know, it had not been done before, and he managed to hit all five Sundays. And we tape somewhat at different times, but there's three of us that tape at the exact same time. So that means pre-taping an interview, which sometimes we will do, like say at seven or seven thirty in the morning, and we. Play play it back. So that's what that's what happened that Sunday And you morning. never get quite as much heartburn as when you're second in the pre-tape rounds and you're waiting for someone to get to your place to run in and do the interview and then they've got to run off to go do someone live. And you know what they say, it rolls downhill, doesn't it? Right. And we never <laughs> like to share guests, but sometimes in a position like that, he is the person to get. So you have to. For, you know, for example, if... Um, Let's say, for instance, this week that Secretary Hillary Clinton was going to go out and do interviews. You would not say, no, you don't want her because she's going to do two other shows as well. Of course, she'll take her. So um, you have to make that judgment as to what's going on in the news, um, what's going on with this particular guest. Um, but ordinarily, it's not something that we, we like to do. Do you coordinate with your counterparts at your competitor shows so to work out timing and work out drive time? Yeah, once it's been decided that a, you know a, a particular guest, and this really mainly only happens now with the administration officials, um, you know, secretaries of state, defense, et cetera, 
um, that are doing the shows, you know, once we have that nailed down, we will kind of do a coordination email with everybody's what we call production managers who deal with the logistics on the show and kind of come up with a rotation that makes sense. Sometimes we'll, the, the guest will stay in one location, for example, if the guest is overseas somewhere, and we'll pull the interview, which means, you know, all of the networks will share resources, share a camera. Um, and we'll just they'll just switch the interview in and out on their IFB. I remember, I think it may have been 2005 or 2006, I reached out uh, for you, Betsy, because I needed some guidance and some, some advice, quite frankly. We were all uh, headed up to New York to interview your former boss, Josh, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, around the Clinton, the Clinton Initiative. Clinton initiative right? And it was the first time that George Stephanopoulos had interviewed uh, Bill Clinton since he had left the White House. And, you know, uh, so I just didn't know what to do. I called Betsy. And I'm like, how are we going to do this? And you really helped me well, out. Did no. I help? Okay, you, good. Of I didn't did. hang up on you. You, <laughs> you put me with Betty Nevins. <laughs> yeah, she's the key. She is the key. And I remember we rented furniture. Right. I mean, the interview we had to do was in like the Sheraton or whatever in New York, and they essentially had given us just an empty, an empty kind of ballroom. Um, and so we actually had to go to like furniture stores and rent like a nice dining room table, a little portrait, uh, a thing of flowers, and 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 recreate a room. And you all did that too. We had two different rooms. We did, and actually, you taught me some wonderful tricks there, as a producer. And uh, I remember forcing Fox to go spend a fortune and interview the president in a. Uh, Air Force National Guard hangar. Uh, we had the room and there was nothing in it. And I said, "Well, there's a uh, a room store down the street. Why don't you go hit it?" Rental furniture. And then you all, I, th- I might have been that interview. One of your shots had a essentially a a poster of a scene of a of a, a room scene on it. Was that that interview? It may have been. Okay. Well, I stole I that idea because I, it looked great. And so I said, oh my gosh, it just, it's a, someone took a picture of a room and essentially made it into like a canvas poster and it was stuck on the wall. Yeah. And so I said, let's do this with the Meet the Press set. So we went back and, you know, the old set where we had what I call the letter walls, the repeat mm-hmm. of Meet the Press, Meet the Press. We took a picture of the Meet the Press wall. We made a poster of it and we used that for a lot of our travel shows from then on when we needed to recreate the set. Yeah, so that's that's what uh, that's what we came to do a lot for because you guys used to be very good. And that was one of the things I think that's made Meet the Press feel uh, this sort of sense of continuity of presence where, you know, you could put a senator in a room and put a light you know, in, in, a, in a lamp and a couple of things. But Flag. you, know, you yeah. guys were, 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 I think, very good at innovating and, and putting a Meet the Press backdrop behind yeah, folks. Yeah, al- I'm always very particular about that on remote. I love it because I feel like they're right in the set with David. Yeah, it just gives some continuity to the show. And we've redesigned ours like a little bit, but um, we use that, you know, I hate the newsroom background shot at, yeah. you know, WXYX. <laughs> Um, so I'm always very particular, and we, we literally have a, a canvas poster, mm-hmm. thanks to that interview you guys did, um, of, uh, of a treated kind of graphic that we ship out. We FedEx it in a tube, and they hang it up behind the gas, and it works great. You're getting well, all so the we, secrets, Josh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you, well, you know, it's, it's fascinating because um, uh, Betsy might not know this, but I think Meet the Press ought to get credit for one of being one of the originators of the effectiveness of step and repeat on television. And I remember as the production chief in the Clinton White House watching Meet the Press every Sunday and watching that Rutzert's backdrop and said, you know, I've got to move beyond what Reagan and Bush did with the constant blue drape in every presidential event. 
I need to insert words that that in maybe three words, like meet the press or meeting America's challenges, right. can in a video bite get the message home, even if it's a VO from an anchorman. Exactly. And that, and that began the White House uh, use of words in backdrops. And Adam... See, we're all stealing stuff from each other. It's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, too, because not only, and, and this goes to what you were saying with the White House, people are taking your bites, your soundbite, and they're replaying them on their air. I mean, the news that we make on Meet the Press gets replayed throughout the day and, you know, if we're doing our job right, throughout the week on other news programs. So um, it really allows us to kind of brand our interviews that when they are re-aired on another network, there's no doubt as to which show it came from. It's great to talk to you, Betsy. And, you know, it's important, I think, for people to realize that innovation in television and messaging and political coverage comes from a lot of work and a lot of learning. And uh, really, that's what you have personified and your broadcast continues to do. Uh, we're real lucky to have you on here at Polyoptics. Well, thanks. It's been great talking to you. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. So, Adam, we're joined now by Professor Alan Schroeder of Northeastern University, the author of Presidential Debates, 50 Years of High-Risk TV. And I'll tell you, Adam, Alan and I go back a long way. We go back to 1984. He was the producer of People Are Talking the NBC affiliate at the NBC affiliate in Boston, WBZ-TV. He was my boss, the executive producer. I was his intern. And when Vanessa Williams was featured in a, a pictorial in Penthouse Magazine, a sh showstopper, the first thing Alan did was dispatch me to the out-of-town news agency in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to pick up as many copies as I could. Alan, what happened to that? Well, gosh, uh, Josh, that, uh, that, that story does take us a long way back. Um, we got in trouble because you were quoted in one of the local newspapers, an AP uh, in an story, unauthorized way, an AP story. That's right, in an unauthorized way, and the PR person for the TV station was not very happy that my intern was out there being quoted. So uh, I almost got assistant. fired for that. So, yeah, and it's hard to get fired when you're an intern. <laughs> Alan, we've been talking to the executive producer of another well-known uh, talk show, Meet the Press, Betsy's, Betsy Fisher. And one of the things that Meet the Press has done so famously and in the months preceding an actual election is to turn their usual forum into a one-on-one -on -one debate. They pick the highest-profile highest Senate debates around the country, and they're their recent moderators, Tim Russert, Tom Brokaw, and now, uh, and now David Gregory, become really intimate moderators in an intimate debate setting. No one has written more about debates and has a, a sense of the span of formats as Alan Schroeder does. How does the Meet the Press debate compare to larger set pieces? Well, essentially, there are three formats for debates. There's the podium debate, where you have the candidates at their lecterns. That tends to be a pretty stiff and formal arrangement. Then you have the town hall format, which in recent years has come into a lot of popularity, uh, with the citizens actually asking the questions. And then you have a variation of some sort on the sit-down debate, which is what the meet the press thing is. And I, I actually really like that format. They tend to be um, a little less artificial. It tends to be a little more conversational. You're 
sitting very close to the person that you're debating as well as to the moderator, which gives it a, a more intimate feel. I think intimate, the word you used, is the right one. Uh, thinking back, for instance, to the 2008 debates, the best of the series was that last one where Bob Schieffer moderator because you had Barack Obama and John McCain sitting down having a conversation. It was really interesting. As we move to the 2012 debates, how are you seeing, we've now seen the first major debate happen at WMUR in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, I'd love to hear your take on some of the people that that, uh, emerged for you in that debate and what's happening in the next few weeks and then what's the Commission for Presidential Debates, the CPB, up to for this cycle? Well, like many, I was really taken by Michelle Bachman's performance. You know, I think this thing, this whole thing of debating is almost instinctual and almost a God-given gift, and she has it, you know, and not very many people can sort of just step up there, especially for the first time like that. That was the first national debate she's ever been in, and really hit it out of the park the way that she did. Um, I, I, I thought Romney was okay. You know, everybody gave him so much credit for being successful in that debate, but really, if you think about what he was successful at, it was just evading any any kind of criticism from his opponents, and and that kind of success won't continue. Um, Gingrich was just weird, I thought, uh, frankly. Um, he he didn't seem to want to be there, and and I'll tell you that's that's been a problem throughout history in in debates when you have candidates who clearly are dis uncomfortable and just in some sort of weird place in their heads about not wanting to participate. You know, with Bachman, by contrast, you could tell she just relished that. She loved being up there. And and that's something that I think good debaters bring to the table. You asked me about the Commission on Presidential Debates. What they're doing right now for the 2012 general election debates is site surveys. Um, They're going around to the different colleges and universities around the country that have applied to host debates and checking out the logistics and that sort of thing. And I think probably by the end of the summer, we'll have some kind of preliminary announcement, um, at least about the uh, the locations. Alan, uh, you know, one of the things that I think about when I look back at this first debate, um, or at least the one in New Hampshire that we've been talking about, is that the word presidential is one that I think everyone aspires to. You know, how did he do? How did she do? Did she look presidential? Did he come across like a president? I don't think anyone's really attributed that to anybody in these debates, but that sort of ephemeral quality is really the major win. It's the takeaway, isn't it? It is, but it's very difficult to pull off in a primary debate. I mean, if you're the if you're the opponent uh, of the incumbent president in a general election debate, you look presidential just by virtue of being one on one on the stage with that 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 person. And in a presidential primary debate, especially at this stage where we're still up to six, seven, eight candidates, it's really difficult for any one individual to break out in that particular way that you're talking about that 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 leadership way, that looking presidential. I think that was certainly Mitt Romney's strategy just to sort of try to float above it all um, and, and God knows he looks the part but it's it's really hard to pull that off in in a, a presidential primary debate especially this early on and you noted in one of the pieces that you wrote for uh, for Huffington Post I think that John Huntsman skipped this debate he wasn't an actual declared candidate at the time but does he miss an opportunity for having not been an MUR or does staying away from there and seizing the spotlight at the Statue of Liberty uh, put him in a a better way to present himself to voters for the first time. 
Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that. You know, uh, George W. Bush skipped the first New Hampshire primary debate uh, back in the 2000 cycle, and at the time there was a lot of criticism of that, but ultimately it really didn't make any difference. He was able to roll himself out according to his own timetable. So Huntsman's decision to hold back, I, I don't think ultimately will hurt him. I, I think an interesting dynamic and something different about this year is this notion that certain candidates are not going to take part in certain primaries or caucuses. And that means that for the debates, they we probably won't have the full roster of people at every debate the way normally this has been done in the past. Alan, one of the things that I enjoyed doing in my former career as a journalist uh, at ABC News was being the lead producer in 2007 on uh, some presidential candidates' debates in Iowa, where we had the full cast of characters from the Democratic field and the Republican field. A much different election, as you point out. No incumbent president. Everybody striving to make ground, to make headlines, to not make a mistake. When you think about those set-pieces debates, when you've got sort of star-quality journalists moderating, um, is this the the politics of personality, the soundbite, or what is it that candidates really hope to accomplish there? Is it about, uh, you know, not getting hurt, or is it that uh, magical moment that everyone's hoping to, to, to garner? I think it's a combination of those things. It's definitely a quest to have the playable soundbite that makes it into the cycle the next day and beyond even. Um, it's definitely emerging unscathed. And uh, for certain candidates, that's more of a problem than others. Um, it's it's also a little bit um, knowing how to how, how to sort of play the interviewer, um, and I think one of the one of my complaints about presidential primary debates, the ones that are sponsored by the media, is that too often it, it becomes about the moderator or it becomes about the the tone of the moderator. Yeah, there's like a cult of personality that. there, right? Yeah, too much so. Uh, you know, think back on that debate in the last cycle between uh, Hillary and, uh, and and Barack Obama that was moderated by George Stephanopoulos and Charles Gibson, where the audience actually started booing the moderator's questions. It's that because they kept trying to pick a fight between the two candidates. And, it, you know, to my knowledge, that's the only time that's ever happened. But I think it shows that there is some risk in this, not only for the candidates, but also for the journalists when they go into that moderating capacity. Alan, the, the first the first campaign in which I was deeply involved was 1988. It was the famous uh, debate in which Bernard Shaw asked Governor Michael Dukakis about his wife Kitty being raped and murdered, and you can shed a little color on that. But what I found interesting about that debate, as compared to earlier cycles when I was mostly just an observer, is that the audience factor became real in these debates because so much of the audience was given away to tickets to large donors and various campaigns had access to certain seats and audience members became a factor in the room by applauding or 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 making other uh, verbal ticks and i always thought that that was really unfair to the viewer at home because i don't want to be swayed by what the room and the and a partisan audience is saying and i much prefer a debate in which even if it is a stand up at a podium the audience is really shushed in your research how have you what have you seen about efforts by producers and networks and hosts of debates to not make the audience a factor 
Look, every debate starts with the moderator begging the audience not to give any kind of audible reaction. And the audience is only human. And, and you know, if they want to react, they're going to react. It's interesting that the only debate cycle in the general election debates in which there was no live audience were the 1960 debates between Kennedy and Nixon, all four of which were conducted in television studios. Um, the interesting, the most interesting of those was one in which um, Nixon was in Los Angeles and Kennedy was in New York. It's the only time you've had a presidential debate where the debaters literally were not in the same room. But, you know, that, that 88 cycle is, is, was sort of famous for that. And the, the, even worse than the, than the Bernard Shaw episode was the vice presidential debate with Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benson, where you actually had cheering sections, you know, sort of organized uh, groups of, of partisan supporters that, that were there to make a lot of noise. And interestingly, after that debate, the uh, Commission on Presidential Debates started insisting that in that distribution of tickets, that the partisans of both sides be interspersed among each other to try to cut down on that kind of cheerleading effect. But you mentioned about the Bernard Shaw question. The backstory on that, the question about if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, his, um, his the, the people on the panel with him, the three journalists, were all women, and they begged him not to ask that question because they thought it was so inappropriate to name her by name. But he had his own idea, and of course he asked it, and the rest is history. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of unfortunate that uh, for, for Michael Dukakis, my colleague here at Northeastern University, that's largely what he's remembered for in that com- campaign, that and, of course, the, uh, the tank. You know, from a polyoptics perspective, uh, I guess I gained, you know, just to go back to that debate with Charles Gibson and, and uh, George Stephanopoulos, two men for whom I worked and produced, the efforts that go in behind the scenes on a debate start with the podium height, and the order of the candidates, oftentimes these days, you'll have a sort of uh, luck of the of the straw uh, poll on who goes where and when. But everybody gets to go up and take a look at the lights, and everyone is a little bit concerned with where their uh, holding room is. And then there is this other element, Alan, uh, of all of these debates, with perhaps the exception, as Josh points out, of these Sunday morning debates, where there's a spin room, a formal area where the media will go to see who won the debate and get the partisan uh, folks to, to spin it and say that their guy was the best. How much of this debate... Uh, sort of auxiliary elements do you uh, appreciate as being important in this modern day iteration of the, of the presidential candidates or presidential debates? I think they are important, but I, I kind of think that this idea of the, the post-debate spin room has, I'm not going to say it's played itself out. I think it'll it'll always be there, but there are so many other alternatives now. It used to be when there was only television, you know, sort of pre-internet, they the networks had to go to the, the spin room because that's what there was. But you have all these other methods now of engaging the audience and, and having some kind of audience interaction there. So I, you know, I hope it doesn't continue to play as big a role. Um, Last year, I went over to the UK for the first ever prime ministerial debates in London. And it was interesting to me to see that they copied, you know, down to every detail, including the spin room, exactly the way that the Americans do, rather than sort of looking at what we did and try to do a better job. Does that mean that when they have their surrogates in the spin room, that people are running around holding signs with their names on it, so everybody knows who's who? I mean, I did not see that. That's I did one not of, see that. Josh, you've seen that before. It's one of these crazy things. I mean, it is almost a circus in three rings. Well, uh, it, it's a great... Debates. 
it's a great job for these young uh, young volunteers and partisans in the states where these debates are held because I'm going to be assigned to David Axelrod and I'm going to hold the David Axelrod sign. And you remember that for the rest of your life if you're in the middle of a spin room and you're barely gasping for breath. You're almost suffocating because so many people are mugging David Axelrod because you're the guy holding his sign. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, just having this discussion and bringing people into you know the world that, that Alan Schroeder, you know so well as a professor, as a student of uh, of debates, and someone who's written and and given great critical analysis. Uh, our our listeners here at POTUS uh, on politics, in the United States, Sirius XM 124, have probably never been to a debate before, and so the whole idea of a spin room is just beyond their ken. But uh, it is one of these things that when you go there, as Josh describes. It is fascinating, and to have been even a part of producing one or, you know, being somebody who is uh, attendant to a, a spinner or a surrogate or if you're even staffing a candidate, uh, these experiences are very, very important in beginning to understand what it is to run a campaign, Alan. Absolutely. Although I have to say, as a, you know, I, I remember sitting in the spin room after a presidential debate back in 2000, and I was, I was doing some writing about it. It was the worst ever circumstance under which to try to, A, watch the debate, and then, B, deliver some lucid commentary about it afterwards, because it's just a madhouse. But, but an entertaining one, no question about it. Alan, switching to the pre-debate activity We've just been talking about the spin room after the debate, but you know, you and I have spent a lot of time in Boston, Massachusetts. We remember when Marvin Hagler, <clears throat> the great middleweight champion, would be getting ready for a championship fight. He'd go off to Cape Cod and practice and practice and rehearse, uh, so and run so many miles in Provincetown. Now, in the the political version of that is what we call debate prep, and it's always held sort of in a remote city where the candidate gets together with his aides, and there's always one person who, either because of a physical or a vocal similarity to his opponent, serves as the surrogate for the opponent. What in your writing and your research has told you about the effectiveness or lack thereof of the debate prep sessions? My sense is that it's, in a very, it's a very effective tool for a candidate who's willing to take advantage of it. But a lot of candidates are resistant to the idea. They think it's a waste of time. You know, it always comes at a bad moment because obviously you're in the middle of a campaign. You'd rather be out there on the hustings than, than kind of go into hiding for two or three days. Um, and so there's some, sometimes some resentment on the part of the candidate. And those candidates who do resent it are the ones who don't get much out of it. But the ones who, who get it and who see the value of this, and your Marvin Hagler analogy is a good one here, because it is almost a physical conditioning, you know. Um, I've heard debating described as a, as a muscle that gets rarely used, and you have to be toned. You have to be toned in that particular way for that particular event. Uh, so the, the, the candidates who are really excellent debaters, I'm thinking of Bill Clinton, who, who worked very hard in his uh, prep sessions, as you well know, Josh, uh, they, the, the, the effort shows in the, in the result, in the product. Um, and then you have others who just think it's kind of silly and who don't take it seriously. And then they get up there to do the debate and they're not quite, you know, in the moment the way that the person who prepared would be. 
Uh, we're speaking to Professor Alan Schroeder, who's uh, with the School of Journalism at, at Northeastern University up in Boston. I wonder, uh, you don't always have to be the best debater to win the debate, Alan. And perhaps uh, you'd shed some light on the debates between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Uh, Bush seemed to win, I thought, those debates based on Al Gore's uh, ability to find a way to lose them. Yeah, uh, Gore was, you know, sort of in a a really bad place in the beginning of those 2000 debates. And I say that because of that James Fallows article that came out over the summer of 2000, in which Gore was positioned as the world's greatest debater and that that he was really going to do a number on George W. Bush. And so he lost the expectations game going in. He had a terrible first debate, the one here in Boston, the one that is, is sort of known as the sighing debate, because it's the one where where um, where Gore kept sort of sighing off camera at things that Bush would say, and so um, it it really uh, it really ended up being um, you know not to his advantage. And and Gore did a lot of kind of dumb things during that series. He, you know, remember the the famous thing where he kind of tried to physically stalk uh, Bush during the, the oh my town god hall he was right up of, in his face he was in his Josh you remember that he was, it like was in so his, uncomfortable. Was, and the audience laughed. The people in the town hall audience laughed. And that was the moment where Gore lost that debate because you, you can't have the audience laughing at you. And Bush, in such a good-natured way, just sort of looked at me, looked at the camera, almost breaking the fourth wall, saying, who is this guy? Yeah, he does kind of a little head nod thing, where, where, and that's what made the audience laugh. It, it wasn't even just that, that, that Gore was doing that, but the, the kind of dismissive reaction, um, physical reaction of, of, of Bush was what made the audience chuckle. You know, uh, it, all of these things come into this impossible calculus that people... You know, it's hard to, to break it down. You do such a great job with it, Professor. But in the end, you're you're left with, uh, what do I do? What's he going to do? What do I do when he does this? And you come down to these very sort of idiosyncratic moments. And I remember in the last cycle, the thing that, that really caught my attention uh, was that vice presidential debate between Sarah Palin and Joe Biden. And she ran up to him and asked him if she could call him Joe. <laughs> and then I'm not sure she called him Joe once in the... Uh, in the in the uh, in the debate, Alan. Yeah, yeah. And well, and then and then it later came out that the reason that she did that is because during her prep sessions she kept referring to him as O Biden, Senator O Biden, and she didn't want to make that mistake during the debate. So Joe was kind of her way of of avoiding that uh, possibility. Alan, you you wrote you wrote a couple of weeks ago uh, in the Huffington Post about the Kennedy Nixon debates, a legacy under siege, and as we talk about. The, the debates in the last cycle between uh, between Biden and Palin, and we think about who the showdown might be against President Obama this fall. What did you mean by that, and, and where are debates heading? I think the legacy under siege is is an expression of my concern that that you know the, the the point of debates, which is to serve the voters and to educate the voters, so often gets lost in all of the mechanics. You know the the things you were talking about before the negotiating over over the height of the podium and how far apart they stand and the formats and all of that stuff. I mean, sometimes the the mechanics of of producing a debate obfuscate the the real point of the debate, which is to have an enlightened 
enlightening and intelligent discussion. And it's only natural that politicians and their handlers are going to push for the, the, the best, most advantageous situation for their person. That's what they do. And, and, and that's, you know, completely normal. But there is this kind of larger goal that I wish we could sometimes just get back to, which is the thing that, that caught the nation's fancy back in 1960, just this idea of a couple of candidates, one of whom is going to be the president, having a very serious, substantive discussion that helps people decide who they're going to vote for. Yeah, the whole thing perhaps has gotten just a bit too cute. Everybody's got an angle. Everybody's got a philosophy or a strategy to win. Uh, Alan Schroeder, you are a uh, a phenomenal guest and a great expert on these things. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time to be with us on Polyoptics from Northeastern University. And uh, as we go through this political season, I hope you'll come back and join us again. It would be my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Alan. Josh, every week we we're, we see either a new entrant into the uh, uh, political uh, campaign for president or we begin to appreciate the failings of those who are already out on the hustings. Uh, Newt Gingrich losing more energy, losing more people from his campaign. What is going on out there? Is there just um, a, a, an ability to self-destruct that's plaguing this campaign or, or Americans just not taking notice and it really doesn't matter? Well, I don't think Americans are really noticing, but I don't think Newt Gingrich has a lot of friends in the press corps that were were willing to cut him a break. And uh, every misstep he made uh, was reported and overly reported. I found it a little over the top that even if a guy has a line of credit, even if unused at Tiffany, I could get a million-dollar line of credit at Tiffany if I wanted to. And I think it, it's not necessary to report that stuff uh, unless it's really uh, interfering with the campaign. But I think uh, Newt is going to have to decide whether this campaign is worth flying in coach seats from state to state and not having much of a campaign apparatus because it doesn't seem like a lot of people want to work with him. Well, you're going to want to tell your wife not to listen to Polyoptics this week for fear that she starts to wonder why her Tiffany's gifts don't exceed uh, the, the, the threshold level. Uh, it's always great doing this show with you and having this conversation, Josh. I want to encourage everybody who listens to Polyoptics to go ahead and uh, go to our, our Facebook page and go to our, our website, polyoptics.com. You can read the 10-part Polyoptics narrative that is a product of Josh King's brilliant mind and hear back episodes of this broadcast. Uh, we will be back with you next week with a, uh, a guest who is high-ranking in the White House and someone you have never heard from before. But once you hear this, you'll want to hear more. <laughs> <laughs>